Welcome to Sunny in Seattle with your host, Sunny Joy. And coming up on today's show, Sunny's guest is Bronnie Ware. She's the author of the internationally best selling memoir, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. So tune in and learn the most common regrets Bonnie heard through the years of sitting at the bedside of terminally ill patients, as well as how to live a regret-free life. And now I welcome your host for the day, Sunny Joy. And good morning. Welcome to Sunny in Seattle. I am your host, Sunny Joy, and we are here every Friday from 9 to 10 a.m. on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. KKNW in Seattle, as well as 103.3 KPCA in Petaluma, California, bringing you amazing guests and resources that will help you create a life filled with peace, joy, freedom, and purpose. It is radio that positively shines. And if you can't catch the show live, you can always access the show archives that are found at 1150kknw.com as well as iTunes and Podcast One. And just a quick disclaimer that the views expressed here are not necessarily the views of Petaluma Community Access, KPCA Radio, or its board of directors, volunteers, staff, or underwriters. And if you ever want to find out more about me, you are welcome to visit my website, which is goldenoversoul.com. And we will go ahead and get started with our amazing guest today. I've been really excited to talk with this lady that I heard through Hay House Radio um, and actually um, have included, I didn't even know that this was her work, but um, have included references to it in my own book. Um, and so excited to speak with her. Her name is Bronnie Ware, and she is best known as the author of the international bestseller selling memoir, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying, read by over a million people in 32 languages and with a movie in the pipeline. Bronnie is also an inspiring speaker and formerly a singer-songwriter. She lives in northern NSW, Australia, and is a passionate advocate for simplicity and leaving space to breathe. Bronnie's favorite role is as a mother, and her favorite teacher is nature. You can find out more about her at her website, which is Ware. Dot com and that's b r o n n i e w a r e bronnieware.com bronnie welcome to sunny in seattle thank you sunny it's a delight to be here yes i and i have to tell you it's funny i i heard i think i might have heard you a year or so more ago where someone was referencing your work on a hay house radio summit and i was so captivated by it and then when i heard about your book i thought oh my gosh we've got to talk to her so i'm so excited to have you here to talk about um your book the top five regrets of the dying which i mean it sounds like it has made its way around the world at this point yeah it's um it's funny funny journey it's been on actually it's it's not that well known in the states yet. I mean, it is it is getting more and more well known. But considering I actually released it first time in 2011, and then um, that was independently, it was rejected by 25 publishers, and I put it out independently in 20,000 uh, 2011. Then Hay House picked it up in 2012, and then we've just released an updated edition um, this year, and that's just been such a gift to be able to improve it and share a little bit more since the journey from then till now has helped me get through some of my own resistance to public life. Um, so yeah, it's been on a journey. It's on, it's um, in 32 languages, as you, as you mentioned, 32 languages with a movie in the pipeline. And it's really, it's, it's a funny thing. It's just starting to filter into, into the U S market 
after all these years, even there's, you know, I, I have a US following, but compared to my followings in other countries, it's, um, uh, yeah, it's, it's just uh, a different timing for it. And it's the new edition that, that is hitting the, the US market, which is great. I'm really proud of it. Oh, yes, yes. It's such a beautiful book. And, and I have to say, I when I saw that it had been rejected by 25 publishers, and yet now has been read by over a million people and 32 languages. It's just, it's such a testament to me that when something is meant to come out into the world, it will make its way. And if you are an author or a writer out there, uh, you know, this is, it should be pretty inspiring. And just Bronnie, before we dive into the actual content of the book, do you have any suggestions out there? Because I know we have a lot of writers in our audience, um, you know, about how, what <laughs> advice you have given your journey on this side of it. Sure, Sunny. Um, the thing is, a rejection isn't a personal thing. Publishing is a business. And if your book fits in with what they're looking for, then you just got lucky on the day. I'm not the best writer in the world. I'm definitely not. I have no qualifications in writing. And my first book, the one that's done all of this, was even unedited. So there aren't actually that many rules. It's more just the commitment to getting your message out there that brings you into a point of readiness. And I actually write about it in another one of my books, my third book. I write a lot about timing and readiness. And I, I really believe in that, that we can feel like we have this message to share, but is a part of us actually fighting that? Because I know I was. I had this burning desire to share this message, but I was so scared of public life and um, losing my privacy and all of that. And so I had to sort of craft that over the years and grow into it myself. So if you're trying to get your book published and it's being rejected by everyone, consider two or three things. One, that it, you may be targeting the wrong publishers at the wrong time. One is that, okay, it may need improving. Um, you know, do consider that because that is all of our work can be improved. It may, may be that. But the other is the timing and readiness factor. And are you, is, is this the right time? Like, are you as ready as you really think you are? Are you being completely honest with yourself when you say, I want to get this book out there, but is a part of you so resistant to what will come from that? Because there's a lot more than just the joy of writing a book in making a living as an author. Yes. And I really appreciate you addressing that. You know, I think it just, I always get inspired when I see people who have continued to um, you know, know that there was something to come out into the world and pursued it, um, even when some other people might have said no. So, um, yeah, so let's talk a little bit about this journey. So how did you come to work with the dying? Because it was not a clear shot. It seems like it was a bit of a circuitous, circuitous route. Oh, I didn't see it coming at all. I, I had absolutely no idea this was going to be a part of my life's work. I was working in the banking industry and I was also trying and, and then I started trying to get going as a singer-songwriter because I had a message to share and I thought singer-songwriting was the way to go and um, but I wasn't enjoying it at all. Um, I hated doing gigs in pubs at 10 o'clock at night and that sort of thing. Um, but I took on work. I just I put a very, very strong prayer out and I probably prayed this for a good couple of years for a job with heart 
because I was sick of the banking industry was changing a lot. It was all about sales. You you really weren't allowed to let one person away from the counter without offering them some sort of insurance product or whatever else. And I just didn't want to be like that. I loved customer service, but I knew there was going to be something else. And I wanted to get out of high heels and corporate uniforms mm-hmm. and just find a job that would allow me to be myself. And so I'd, I'd done some backpacking in, in over, overseas in England and um, a bit of Europe and I'd been a companion for an elderly lady. So I decided to take a job as a living caregiver for an elderly, an elderly lady in Australia just so that I could support my creative journey with the music and not have to pay rent or a mortgage. And then as it turned out, she, she'd been sent home from hospital but about a month later they realised that she was actually dying and so I was asked by the agency I was working with whether I wanted to stay on and look after her and I just went down to the harbour. I was living in her place at Sydney and uh, and I just went down to the harbour and just I was crying and thought, how the heck am I going to handle this? And then I just thought, okay, well, maybe this is the job with heart that I've been been praying for and mm. So I just trusted that that I was called there and I was going to give it my best shot. And, yeah, that led into eight years of, of looking after dying people while I was trying to get my, my music going and uh, never realising that I saw the, the care work as a transformation on a personal level, never imagined it would overlap and actually be my main um, channel for for creative expression in in years to come, and so for that I'm I'm so enormously grateful. Yeah. So how did you know, Bronnie, after working with these lovely people um, and hearing their stories and developing these connections, when did you know this was something that needed to be shared with a larger audience? Well, a couple of the people, well, not a couple, quite a few. Had when they were showing their regrets, said, "Don't you make the same mistake, Bronnie? And make sure no one in your world makes the same mistake. Share these lessons onward." And so, at the time, I just saw it as, "I'll share this on to everyone I know." I, I hadn't, and maybe even integrated into one or two songs, but I, I certainly didn't think that it was going to be a book. I was keeping a journal the whole time because I loved writing, but. It was more, those seeds were sown then where I was given that permission to share the lessons onward. But it wasn't actually until just after I finished working with dying people, I was burning out after eight years of of supporting people and I didn't really have any support myself at that time. So it's not surprising that I I was heading that way. And I managed to get some funding through a friend of one of my dying patients um, to set up a songwriting program in a women's jail and because uh, I wanted to work where there was some hope. And then a music magazine said, write me an article about what it's like to teach in the jail and how you got this program started. So I did that. And then as soon as I finished it, I thought, why aren't I writing more? I love writing. I <laughs> always had pen pals as a young girl and Yeah, I just didn't consider writing to be a part of my path. I just thought songwriting was it. And so I thought I'll start a blog. And uh, and I Googled good subjects for blogs and best subjects for blogs and all, you know, all of these ridiculous things. And then just it, it was all so many 
crazy answers and replies that I got for, for when I Googled that, things I definitely did not want to write about. <laughs> and and then, like, a lot of Hollywood gossip, like, what's hot right now? It's like, oh, my goodness, like, where's the integrity here? And <laughs> so then I just sort of sat with it and I just was sitting there and watching this little bird sing and flit around my garden and, and then I just got very clearly, write what you know. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I know about the regrets of the dying because the the pain I've witnessed and the anguish I've witnessed through the regrets dying people have shared with me has been transforming my life for the last eight years. So I just went straight inside and sat down and wrote the article and just left it and just wrote it, put it on my blog. It was the second article ever on my blog. And then over the next six months or so, people started finding it here and there. And then, and I sort of burnt out during that period. So again, it's about timing and readiness because if it had exploded at that time, I wasn't ready to deal with it. Whereas over the next six months, I ended up going through a really unexpected um, experience of depression. And I, as I was coming out of that, I basically said to life, okay, I'm ready to get on with it. Show me the way to go here. And my blog just went boom and exploded. And uh, and then I had agents and people coming to me saying, have you ever thought of writing a book? And I said, well, actually, yeah, everyone's got a book in them. And so I realized the only way I could write the book was to show my own personal transformation through it because otherwise it's not relatable to people. Everyone thinks, no one wants to think about them dying, but to actually incorporate the wisdom from the dying into a living woman's journey was the only way I was guided to do it. And so that's what I did. And then the agent that I signed to didn't have any success. I tried a couple more publishers. And in the end, after 25 publishers, I thought, oh, well, I was an independent singer-songwriter. I'll be an independent author. And so that's sort of how it, how it came about. And uh, four months later when I was in labour, in the same 24 hours as I was in labour, my, my book took off <laughs> and, I, ah. and I got offered a publishing deal in that same 12 hours after my daughter was born. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, and I have to say, Bronnie, you know, I want to, of course, talk about and the content in the book, some of these regrets, because I know people will want to know those. But one of the things that stood out to me, because you did craft this as a memoir and it really was how their story shaped your story and how you integrated what you learned in your life and how you transformed in such a huge way through a number of different um, journeys that you were on, not just working with the dying. But I just, I have to say, you have been such a beautiful example of someone who has lived a life based on faith and and what the way you put it is trying your best to always move forward with trust, knowing that I would be looked after. And I just I'm curious, you know, from where you sit, how did you know all these twists and turns? You'd moved from country to country. You didn't always know where you would be living. You didn't always have more than five dollars in your pocket. It just was a very um gosh, a very guided existence where you always landed on your feet and sometimes in the most just incredible ways. Like, How does one live like that? Well, I think the pain of my former life drove me forward. I knew that I couldn't go back to Monday to Friday, nine to five in the banking industry. And so having that regular income came at a really high price for me. And it was it took me a lot of years of healing to separate um, routine and structure and regular income from 
despair and unhappiness. So um, from from the the discontent I, I had in my work, but also Sunny, it's it's just a practice. The more you surrender, like like anything, you get better with practice. So for every small leap of faith I did, I would get better and I would gain a little bit more courage. And every so then every leap of faith I did after that seemed to be a little bit bigger and a little bit harder than the one before. And even though a part of me knew I would land on my feet because I had before, it wasn't pleasant. Don't get me wrong. I had to, I had to grow through an enormous amount of resistance and fear, and try and develop my faith and trust in life to say, okay, look, I know that that way is not right. I'm, I can't go that way. I'm going to honour my heart here, but I'm going to trust you're, you're looking after me. And there were times I thought, oh, I hate this. I hate it. Why can't I just be a regular person who's happy to work Monday to Friday, get a mortgage, whatever? But then I'd land on my feet and I'd say, oh, thank you, God. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. I, knew you I knew we could do it. I knew we could do it. Why do I ever doubt it? And so that adrenaline and that proving to myself that faith actually works and that when we dare to get out of our own way, the results are so much better than we could orchestrate ourselves, that became a little bit enticing and, um, and gave me the courage and confidence. But there probably hasn't been a leap of faith where I haven't got to that point at some stage saying, oh, my goodness, I cannot believe I'm in this again. But then I land and I think, oh, yes, I'm so glad I'm brave. Well, I love your living example of this. and It's very inspiring. Um, and, of course, where you have ultimately landed here today, um, what a beautiful outcome. And, and obviously you play a huge role in a bigger tapestry um, that's very meaningful to so many people. Um, yeah, so let's let's talk a little bit about some of these regrets. And I have to say, the first one that you mentioned in the book is actually the one that I referenced in my book. Um, and I, I heard, I think this must have been you that they were talking about. It was on a Hay House summit, and they were talking about a, a woman who was either a palliative care worker or worked with the terminally ill, and she had heard from these dying patients or dying clients that the number one regret that they had was that they had not had the courage to live a life true to themselves. Not They, they had lived the life that others expected of them, and that just hit me like, a ton of bricks because um, I, I I work with you know um, uh, mainly women but some men as well who are deciding you know whether or not to stay in an unhappy marriage and um, I think you actually had an example in there of a woman who had stayed in an unhappy marriage way overstayed her welcome and so I'm I'm just curious you know since this turned out to be it seemed like from what you said in the book the most common one about not living a life true to yourself I thought maybe we could start there and you could speak to that a little bit. Sure, sure. Yeah, that was certainly me. They were talking about yeah. in the Hay House Summit. Um, this was, it was by far the most common regret and it came from all sorts of angles. But my favourite example of it is, um, was Grace. And she, of all the people I looked after, she's still one of my favourite darling, mm. darling people. And she had stayed with, she'd been married for over 50 years she was very much shaped by what would people think and what would the neighbours think and uh, and just living according to 
society's expectations from her generation. And she, in her own words, she said her husband was a tyrant and her adult children also confirmed that. They said they they never remembered her being happy in the marriage. And her dream was only to travel some of Australia. It wasn't so lofty to, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't unrealistic. It, it was actually... Um, quite an achievable dream for someone if if they focused on it. But he had no desire or intention, and so she never got to travel outside of Sydney at all. In fact, hardly ever left their own suburb. And uh, and then he became ill and had to go into a nursing home. And so she, for the first time, caught a glimpse of what was her potential, you know, what what she could do with with some of her last years because by then she was in her 80s. And she went to the travel agent and picked up some brochures of bus tours, local bus tours and things because by then she didn't want to do the big camper van travel, which, you know, that had passed. The children were grown and she was a grandmother. But she wanted to get out socially and see a bit more of the country. And within three weeks of her husband going into the nursing home and her becoming free as such, she became ill and uh, and then started having and, and didn't pick up. And so she, they started having some tests. And within a month of that of her husband going into the nursing home, she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And she hadn't been a smoker. He had, and in those days everyone mm. smoked inside. Um, and she never left the house again. When I when I arrived on the scene, I was there with her for a couple of months. She never left the house again. It was a huge achievement just to wheel her out to the sunroom. And so it was a very quick demise. And she was a very small woman but really fierce because of her anguish and her um, just the depth of her regret in, in not, living a life true to herself and living the life that others had expected. And I remember one day she was sitting there holding my hand, crying, and she said to me, and I was crying as well because it was just so raw and honest, and she just said, whatever you do, Bronnie, do not end up in this position yourself. Promise mm-hmm. this to me now. Promise this dying woman that you will find the courage to live true to your own heart, not how everyone else expects you to live. Promise me. And she's bawling and I said, no, I'm bawling. And and I said, I, I promise you, Grace. You know, I don't just promise you. I promise myself as well. And and that was a that was a turning point. And it also opened my eyes up to to the power and the that heartache of of regret. And I didn't then go asking people about regrets. The only time I asked them anything was when they brought up the subject of regret and then I would sort of allow them a listening space by asking a question or two. But once Grace had opened my eyes to just how heart-wrenching regret is when you've got to the end of your life and your choices are gone and you realise you could have done life so differently but you didn't have the courage to and now you've got to live with those consequences and that pain knowing there's nothing more you can do about it. Whoa, never. I'm, I'm never going down that road. And so, yeah, it opened my eyes up and it just kept coming up again and again and again, which on a personal level was massively um, – it was a massive gift for myself because – it, it was a very strong reminder, okay, Bronnie, you might be in a hard time right now, but look what's going to happen if you don't make these choices to support your own calling. And yeah. so, yeah. 
yeah, carried that on. Yeah, and it is it is interesting to me, um, given that you say that was the most common one, that there was the regret, regret around not living a life true to themselves. And it just I, that seems like such a, a sad point that that would be the most common regret, that it is that common for people to live a life that others expect of them versus the one that's true to themselves. And I just, I mean... Did you did you notice that in a bunch of different areas of of one's life? Like you said that it it manifested in an, in a number of ways, not just in you know Grace's example of staying in a marriage that and not traveling when she wanted to. Yes, I mean there were people who had studied the wrong courses and um, didn't want to stay in the jobs they were in. But what would people think of them? Like what would society think, or what would their peers think if they? changed direction and went from something that perhaps had a higher esteem in in society to something they actually wanted to do. So um, one example, one, one man I looked after, he'd been a lawyer. This isn't actually in the book, this story, but he'd been a lawyer and he wanted to be a landscaper mm. and he stayed as a lawyer. And it was such a busy job that he hardly ever had any time to do landscaping he had his own personal garden at home, but in the end, his work became so busy, he was paying a landscaper to do his his garden because he thought he'd look like a fool. His wife was worried how they'd look in society since all of their friends were on a similar income and in a similar career space. And he deeply regretted not not making that choice and living according to how other people expected him to because he didn't want to disappoint everyone else and didn't want to look a fool. And that's a part of living a life that is free of regrets. You have to be willing to be misunderstood and you have to be willing to take that risk to look like an idiot because not everyone is going to understand the choices you make, but your heart will understand. And that's, that's all that matters if you're going to get to the end of your life free of regrets. Yes, absolutely. Um, and that's a beautiful place to take our break. Um, so I am joined today by Bronnie Ware. She is the author of the international best-selling memoir, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. You are listening to Sunny in Seattle, and we will be back to continue our conversation in just a few. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. I'm Dr. Anthony Lazarus, and this is Climate Connections. When too much rain falls on farm fields, crops can rot and the soil can wash away. But with too little rain, the plants can wilt. In the Northeast U.S., both of these extremes are becoming more common. For example, in 2018, Pennsylvania had its wettest summer on record, and then at the same time in September, it was like drought conditions in Vermont and parts of Maine, and we're just expected to see more of that. That's Alyssa White of the University of Vermont, she led a survey of almost 200 fruit and vegetable growers about how they're adapting to these extreme weather events. She says many are now planting cover crops, which can reduce erosion and help the soil hold more water. Others are experimenting with new plant varieties or tilling the soil less. Farmers are using a lot of different strategies. Yet the majority of growers still feel unprepared for the increasingly extreme weather. Many say they do not have the technical skills or the financial resources to adapt. So White says that farmers need education, technical assistance, and financial support as they work to keep their crops and businesses growing. 
Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. Learn more at YaleClimateConnections.org. Sunny in Seattle, radio that positively shines. Welcome back to The Dog Show. Up next, we have Satchmo. Satchmo is a member of the Shelter Pet Group. That's right, a group known especially for their couch-snuggling, ball-chasing, face-licking, tail-wagging, backyard-hanging, and, of course, companionship. And what breed would you say Satchmo is? I'd have to go with maybe a lavish terrier hound chihuahua-looking kind of mix. Tremendous dog. Mm, I'd also like to point out Satchmo's coloring, a white, gray, brown, black brindle, simply marvelous. You know, it's such a treat to watch a dog like this. Now, let's see him in action. Look how he makes eye contact with his person. That's actually known as the treat stare. How intuitive. And now he appears to be excitedly turning in circles. Ah, the happy dance, so common with this group. And finally, the loving face lick. It's great how he just gets in there and, well, licks. Fantastic. But really, the best way to know an amazing shelter pet like Satchmo is to meet one. Visit theshelterpetproject.org today. Adopt. Brought to you by Maddie's Fund, the Humane Society of the United States, and the Ad Council. And welcome back to Sunny in Seattle. I am joined today by Bronnie Ware, the international best-selling author of the book, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Um, and we were talking, you know, before the break, Bronnie, um, about one of the, the biggest, most common regrets that you heard. And, you know, th- you've got five regrets in the book here. I've got tons of questions in and around the regrets, as well as so many other things. So I just, you know, I'd like to turn it to you. Is there another regret of the five that you'd like to talk touch on here. Um, I, um, I've got plenty of questions to ask, but I thought I'd check in with you, which one you wanted to talk about. Well, I think the one that stirs the pot the most is the one where, um, people said they wish they hadn't worked so hard. And, but the one that actually had the most effect on me personally was wishing that they'd had the courage to express their feelings. Mm. So, you know, and then there's another couple after that as well, but, um, I, I'll give you a brief summary of the second one, um, that people wishing that they hadn't worked so hard. So when this first came out, I was absolutely slammed by people saying, how dare she say we shouldn't work so hard. We, we need to work hard to achieve things and everything else. And my response, well, I didn't respond publicly, but my thoughts were, well, don't shoot the messenger. I'm the one who has witnessed the pain of people who have worked so hard here. And what it came down to, Sunny, was it wasn't about, it was not about not loving your work. And it's great if you love your work and you're inspired and you want to work but and, and work a lot. But it was about leaving space for other areas of your life as well. Because what happens is when the work is then taken away, a lot of people completely lost their identity. Their whole identity was wrapped up in their job title. And once that was taken away from them, they were completely lost, absolutely, you know, wandering, having no idea how to fill their space. And so what some of these dying people shared with me was they wish they'd made more space for other areas of their life as well, for for family, for fun, for travel, for well-being, for other areas as well. And what I have found, because this also had such a huge impact on me, at the time I was looking after dying people, I was working 12-hour shifts from 8 a.m. till 8 p.m., five days a week. And as they neared their their death, their passing, I would up that to six days a week. So if I was their primary carer. And 
so I was actually having to learn that lesson myself. And over the years, life has, has helped me really grasp the importance of this. And what I've found is that when you commit to other areas of your life, and in particular, leaving some space without any plans at all, then life can actually breathe a sigh of relief and say, oh, now I can help you. Whereas if you're just working so hard, are you working hard because you're passionately driven? And if that's the case, then there's a chance you're only going to want to do that for one, you know, for a project. You're not actually going to want to do, be passionately driven 60 hours a week for the rest of your life. It doesn't work that way. So are you working because you're inspired and you're passionate? Great. Get on with that, but know that it will end. Or are you working because of fear, fear of um, not having enough money, fear of losing your job, fear, you know, all of these. Is fear driving why you're working so hard? And if that's the case, it's it's about pulling back and really looking at that fear and finding a way to create space so life can actually support you to dissolve that and find more um, perfect solutions for you. And so as I've let go of working so hard, and I've created space, especially space with unplanned time, which sometimes has to be planned. You have to schedule in space sometimes. But then to just allow your heart to lead you on the day, whether that means staying at home with your feet up and reading a novel or whether it means jumping, for me, jumping on my push bike, I go for a ride along a river and um, or go for a walk without your phone and just people watch, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But it's about allowing yourself some time to just be, to simply be. And what I've found is in doing that, life then blesses me with shortcuts and blesses all of us with shortcuts. And so we don't actually have to work that hard anyway. Mm. So, yeah, it's it, it, it will send a signpost or it will provide, put someone in front of us or give us a, an insight that a busy mind would not have heard. Yes, yeah, and I have to say, since we're talking about this particular regret, the story that you um, showed here was, I think, for me, the most heartbreaking, if not one of the very top ones, um, and the gentleman who his wife kept urging him to retire and please go travel with her, and he didn't. And then what happened? <laughs> if you don't mind sharing that story. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was that was John, and he he worked in um, a really high level engineering company, and just loved project after project and the challenges and the esteem that came with that. And his wife uh, wanted to go travelling. Their children had grown up. They were quite comfortable um, financially because he'd worked in this job all his life. So they didn't really need. They didn't need to work. They had managed their money fine. But even still, she even offered him to, could you go part-time or just extend your holidays a little bit? And he just kept saying, after one more project, one more, after this one, this one. And then finally she just got to the point where she said, you know, we're getting old. And he started to realise she was old. And, you know, that they were both old. He looked at her one day and realised, oh, my goodness, you know, after all these years of marriage, we are actually becoming elderly people. And so he said to her, okay, well, I will, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. And she was over the moon. And then he said in one more year. And she was just like, oh, my goodness, you know. And uh, But she loved him and respected it. And so, um, so he wanted to see this last project out. And he said to me later, it was not even the most, you know, it was a, not just another project, but he had this appetite for, for closing the deal and winning the deal and that sort of thing. And 
um, during that year, she became ill. And um, before the year was up, he had retired, but not because he was ready to go traveling, but because she was dying. And so he, before the year was up, she had already died. And so he had to live with that regret and that guilt. And it was a really heavy burden upon his heart and his, and his soul. And they were a really good team, he said. They used to have so much fun together. And he prioritised work over her and over them. And, and then when the only thing that actually made him quit early was the fact that she was actually dying and, and it was the only way he could actually get any time with her before she died. And, yeah, it was, it was awful. You, you don't want to live with regret. You don't want to live or die with regret, believe me. It's, it's the most heart-wrenching experience to witness and even now years on when I think of sitting out on his balcony, we were overlooking Sydney Harbour and when he was talking about it and the sun was setting over the, it was beautiful, over the Harbour Bridge and everything and and it was one of those most picturesque scenes and as raw as possible in heartache as, as you could ever experience in this lifetime, yeah. Yeah, yeah, very impactful. Um, yeah, um, and just to turn to the regret that you had mentioned that was the one that really um, impacted perhaps you the most, which was the wishing that they had had the courage to express their feelings. Why was that one so meaningful to you, Bronnie? Uh, I'd grown up as a black sheep in a family that was um, – criticism was a big part of, of the dynamics of the family, and so I was a bit of – I was the family joke because I – I was different. I was creative. I was sensitive. I was a traveller. I didn't want to stay in a corporate role. You know, I didn't want to live the life everyone expected of me. And um, and so I just, you know, I, I battled a lot with my sensitivity around what was normal and and what was expected of me. And so my coping mechanism as a child was to shut down because I found that um, that the the quickest way to the easiest way to peace for me as a child in my child's mind was to say nothing just to be quiet and not be noticed and uh, and that was safe for me and my dad was he's he's um he's already passed on now and we healed enormously before he died but he had been a very broken raging alcoholic like really angry really broken bless him but broken nonetheless and I was a sensitive one like he had been in his family and so I sort of copped the brunt of that. And and as I say, Sunny, we, we did some amazing healing and so that I'm really grateful that, that we had that chance. But it took me a lot, a lot of work to actually dare to um, to express myself because if I thought to express myself, I figured I would just get knocked down. And it's funny that then life has called me into such a public role and it was one of my greatest forms of resistance like I don't want to be heard but I've been bestowed this message that is so enormous that I have to share it because it's my calling my, my life's calling to to teach this so other people don't suffer as my dying patients had and so it's been a, a, a huge transformation and healing for me in having the courage to express myself and that started with me standing on a stage p performing my songs years ago. And 
I used to hate it. I'd go to every gig and I'd dread it, absolutely dread it. I'd stand there shaking and I'd drive home crying my eyes out. But I had a message to share. And then over time with practice, I started feeling safe in expressing myself. And now, I mean, I've written two very, very honest memoirs. I, I express myself because it's all right to be human. You know, none of us are perfect and the more courageous we can be to express ourselves and just be who we are, the more it gives other people the courage to do the same. And then we're actually living in a real world, not in a, in a pretend superficial world where everyone's scared to actually let their feelings be heard. And, and we need to, we need to connect through that vulnerability. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And so of course we've, we've gone through about three of those regrets and, and there are, we've missed a couple so far, but I, I just want to ask about some other things. Of course we can cover all the regrets if you'd like to, Bronnie. <laughs> well, no, like- no, it's, it's, there's, there's bigger, you can always buy the book and look up the regrets. That's easy. You know, <laughs> yeah. but there's, there's more that can be shared here through our conversation than, than me just repeating the book. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well then I will take that and run with it. Cause I had some other questions. I wanted to ask you about. Um, so one of the things that really stood out to me is you had a couple of moments. Um, I thinking I'm thinking specifically of with um, Stella and also with I believe it was Lenny, and you had these moments where they were the 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 moments of their actual transition where the spirit leaves the body, if you want to call it that, and something pretty magical happened. Um, I, I know I've, I've interviewed some folks around shared death experiences and around what happens, the signposts of dying when people are really leaving the body. I'm just curious, you know, what have you learned about the afterlife or what is beyond where we are now based on being at the bedside of these people in some of these really magical moments? It's the most joy-filled space. It's, it's got to be love. Sunny, mm. it's it's just it has to be love in its absolutely purest, most joyful form, because I have seen people like Estella. She was in a coma. Um, all her uh, the circulation had gone from her fingers and toes. She'd been in a coma for over a day, and you know she was really close to the end of her death. It, um, I think it was like thirty six hours or something. She'd been in a coma by then, and she just opened her eyes looked at something on the ceiling with the most incredible expression of joy and recognition that I'd ever seen mm. and was just delighted. And, and my, her husband and myself just looked up at the ceiling like, what, what is she seeing here? And we, you know, we saw a ceiling, a white ceiling. And, um, and she was just, uh, just the excitement and, and love on her face was life-changing and so then and then she just sort of went uh, and her eyes closed and she was gone just like that like no big shudder no it was just it was just the most gorgeous passing anyone could ever wish for and and the joy that was on her face and oh my goodness it was so I mean what can it be It, it has to be beautiful it has to be love and it has to be safe and it has to be joy because I, there's no way a dying woman can come out of a coma and have that look on her face and see something, like very clearly be looking at something or someone um, and, and it not be real. So for me it's just given me so much confidence to know that I'm not actually alone here. There's, there's a, lot, 
a lot of support within divinity, you know, from divinity to, to support our journey. And yeah. And then I saw a really similar thing with, with Lenny at the end. And, um, he, he was such a gorgeous old boy. I just, I just loved him. And yeah, just before he died, just in, just in his last hours, he, the look of joy on his face, he looked into me and he'd been sick. He could hardly smile. He could hardly do anything other than just moan and wave this other visitor out of the room regularly. And, and I got a kick yeah. out of that, by the way. The visitor oh, just kept showing up and oh insisted my on reading. <laughs> oh, bless him. Bless him. Yeah. And he's just like, oh, just, and he just waved his hair like, get rid of him, please. <laughs> And yeah, it was it it was a yeah funny it, it's a funny sketch if it wasn't such a true story you know, and uh, yeah and so and then all of a sudden he just had this beautiful feeling of joy and I'd been sitting beside his bed I was crying because we'd grown really close and I knew it was his last last hour or whatever and uh, yeah and he just looked at me with a smile and radiance that was not a dying person. There was not one inch of sickness in his smile, not one inch of exhaustion or death or anything else in his smile. And he just held it and looked into me and my heart just cracked open like I didn't even know was possible. And I felt this love flow from him. And it wasn't from Lenny. It was love. It was just love. It wasn't like this, this old guy thanking his carer. It wasn't that sort of thing, just like, oh, thanks a lot, Bronnie. You know, here's a smile for all we've shared. It was, he was a portal of love and it was flowing through him and he was just radiating with such immense joy that my heart just cracked open and received it as well. And so the only tears that came after that were tears of joy because it was just like my, I I cannot even explain it well to the level. I mean, I, I explain it in the book probably to, one hundredth of the experience of love that I that I had, yeah. so um, yeah, it was it's phenomenal. So if we can re- try and remember that we're not all we're not here on our own, we don't need to know all the answers. That there is love behind us, trying so hard to support us if we just dare get out of the way. Mm, yes, yes, and it, so for you know, thinking about these transitions that we will all go through, this final transition. Um, and hearing a story like Stella's or like Lenny's, what advice do you have on making such a beautiful, smooth transition? Because, you know, not all of them have been that smooth from not only what I've read in your book, but from what I've heard. So what do you think makes the difference or how can we welcome such a beautiful, smooth transition? Um, a couple of things. Talk about death. Talk about death more now and in life. And as society and as individuals and in families and friendships, just let it be a part of the truth of our existence because we're all going to go through it. And we just, as a society, we just shut it out in denial and it doesn't help us at all in our lives and it doesn't help us at all at our at the time of death. So the more peaceful you can be about the fact that you're going to die, the more peaceful your transition is going to be anyway. So speak about death. And then if you know, if you're blessed to know you're dying in the sense that you have time to prepare for it, then do it your way and and be courageous enough to say, I don't want a thousand visitors a day. 
I want three or four visitors a day for 10 minutes max, you know, maximum. That's it. Um, stay in touch with your friends. Get in, have the people you most want around you because everyone wants to come and say their goodbyes and it's really lovely and kind and everything else, but it's for the person saying goodbye. The person who's actually dying really doesn't need all of those goodbyes. They're tired. They're dying. They just want quality connections in their last days, and that means the people in their absolute inner circle. And so even though we feel like, oh, they're dying, I better get over there and say goodbye, get over there, say goodbye, but do it quickly and don't feel you've got to come back if they're still alive two or three weeks later. Say your goodbye, and if they live on for a couple of months, maybe go back again. But if, if they're still alive only a couple of weeks later, just accept the fact that you've said your goodbye and and the greatest honour you can do to that dying person is give them their space unless they call for you and make mm. it about them, not about you. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and I, I want to share here a quote from the book um, because, you know, you spend a lot of time with these people and you did hear a lot of regrets. I'm sure there were many that were not listed in the book that, that you listed the top five, but I'm sure there were more. I'm curious, though, um, well, I'll just read this quote and then I'll ask the question. So Bronnie writes that the potential for fulfillment and pleasure that each of these dear people caught a glimpse of towards their passing is what is on offer to every one of us now before our own death arrives. My lessons had been to my lessons had been in how to allow it, which was through faith and self-love. I just had to get out of my own way first. That was where the real work lay, learning to own my thoughts by clearing away the debris that had stopped me letting it all flow. So, you know, you heard the regrets. I'm curious, what were your biggest takeaways or your biggest takeaway from working with these wonderful people? Just how much um, of a gift life is and how sacred our time is and that we're all worthy of joy, that life isn't supposed to be a penance and most of our suffering only comes from our resistance to allowing ourselves to receive the joy and blessings that are waiting for us and, and being scared of our own potential. And so being around dying people taught me life is, life is a precious gift to be appreciated, enjoyed and celebrated and that I am worthy of joy. Every single one of us is worthy of joy. We just have to undo all the stuff that taught us otherwise. And that's where the work comes in. Yeah. yeah, and it does seem also that that you learned quite a lot about receiving as well in this journey, not only with your the, the, the clients that you mentioned or the patients you mentioned in the book, but through the rest of your journey. And I, you know, I know we're getting close to the end of our time together, so I don't want to open up a huge can of worms, but I am curious, you know, what you've learned about your own self-worth and receiving um, through your work with the dying. Well, we're all worthy. And we are all equally worthy. And if we don't believe we are, then it's it's probably come from someone else's unworthiness along the way. So the more you can realize, actually, I am an expression of life. I am an expression of God. I am worthy. Then the more you open up to receiving. And also, if you stop receiving and you're just giving, give and give, then you're creating un, like an imbalance in the world. You can't just keep giving we have to receive to allow others the pleasure of giving. And the more you can open up and receive whole 
wholeheartedly without excuses and and um, trying to talk it down and just say thank you, then the more life will bless you and the more you'll have to give on, you know, to pass on as well. So it's not like you just become a receiver and you stop being a giver. You, you just keep, you, you increase the flow of all of it and that's healthy for the whole world. Yeah, that 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 whole idea of being in flow. I'll just I'll read one more quote here because I pulled a lot of quotes <laughs> from this time <laughs> around. But um, you said I could look at this time and say it happened. Um, this I think you were looking at a time um, when you were in a little bit of a dry spell in terms of your work. So you said I could look at this time and say it happened because the work or the house sits dried up. That's what happened physically, but it was a situation I had created through my own lack of self worth and by nurturing old seeds seeds that no longer served me. Obviously, there were new seeds being sown too, because at other times I was starting to live an abundant, amazing lifestyle. Learning to undo the old patterns in my head was taking time though, and I had made it harder for myself by not being able to ask for help. And it just, you, you, the, the, there were so many moments of, it seems like you stepped in the flow and then the amazing things happen. And that, uh, you know, did you, do you find that that flow is available to all of us if we will just allow and receive and see our own self-worth oh that that flow is waiting to pour upon us all absolutely it's it's available for all of us but the there's so many upper limits we have to work through and so every time it flows then we have to start healing the the things we do to sabotage our expectations for it to keep flowing and it's not until you can start saying oh actually this this is how it can be. This is life. It's not like, oh, it's been so good, it's going to turn bad now. Um, get rid of that and just think, oh, actually, this is how life wants to be. It wants me to enjoy my life with more ease and it's waiting to bestow me with, with blessings. Yeah, that, that flow, absolutely, Sunny. That, that flow is there for all of us. We just have to dare to get out of our own way. Mm, beautiful. And on that note, um, we will bring this wonderful interview to a close. I do want to make you all aware that Bronnie will be at 1440 University in Northern California in May of 2020. Um, those uh, registration tickets will be available um, in the near future. You can go to her website, which is brawnyware.com. That is brawnyware.com to find out more um, when those become available. And of course, um, Bronny, who has joined me today, is the author of the international best-selling memoir, The Top Five Regrets of the Dying. Bronny, thank you for having joined me today on Sunny in Seattle. Thank you, Sunny. It's been such a delightful conversation. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And for everyone out there, thanks for joining us. This is your host, Sunny Joy, signing off. Preceding audio was via a Skype call.